0: The Growing Disciples course is all about enjoying and enriching our relationship with God such that we live well as authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm Stuart Holman. Welcome to another in our series of daily devotionals in the book of Psalms. Already in this series, we've seen how the Psalms can act as training wheels for our prayers. We're invited to pray along with the Psalmist so that we can explore the depths of experience with God. And so when the bottom falls out of our world, we already have a language for prayer, even in our tough situation. Or alternatively, when we encounter the greatness of God, the majesty and the faithfulness of God, we also have a framework or a pathway of praise to follow. The Psalms teach us how to pray. They give us models and they encourage us to make them our own. Now, when we explore the whole book of the Psalms, we discover that successive psalms often talk to each other. Their juxtaposition gives each a certain perspective or flavour. At other times, two psalms might even work together to deliver a stronger message than they would on their own. We find an example of this in Psalms 9 and 10, which I think may have originally been a single acrostic poem in which the alternating lines began with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, in their final form, Psalms 9 and 10 are a kind of a broken alphabetical acrostic. It's nearly the proper A, B, C through the entire alphabet, but there are three or four little blips that don't fully conform to the pattern. Let's have a look at it. Psalm 9 begins with another superscript. For the director of music, to the tune of The Death of the Son, a Psalm of David. We don't know how the tune goes, but it doesn't sound overly cheery. Which is a little surprising because Psalm 9 begins as a very upbeat, triumphant sounding song of praise. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. For who's God? He's the protector of the oppressed. He is the great king over his people, ruling with justice and righteousness. In response, uh, in verse 19, we have this prayer. Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We've ticked over into Psalm 10, but there's no superscript to introduce the next psalm. Instead, the theme just continues straight on, calling upon God to bring justice. The request is, is very urgent. It's driven by a concern that God's name would be honoured. And then verse 2 of Psalm 10 seems to click over into a new unit, a much more troubled stanza where all of the truths about God's character that we just read in Psalm 9 are challenged. We know that God is good and true and just, that he rules supreme over all in righteousness. But now the psalmist asks, so how come the wicked still prosper? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. It's a pretty bleak unit asking some pretty hard questions of God. Lord, it really does seem that evil people thumb their nose at you and you do nothing. In the midst of all of this, our faith is challenged. It's it's hard to even read this, right? Who imagined that the Bible would even allow these kinds of dangerous ideas or accusations to be recorded? God is, it seems, not the least threatened. Instead, we see this prayer of the righteous grappling with honest doubts, with questions, with the challenge of the sceptic. What did David do? What do we do? We turn these thoughts, these challenging thoughts, over to God, who is easily up for the challenge. And so, verses twelve through fifteen, David calls upon God to rouse himself and to act to protect his name and his reputation from the criticism of the skeptics. And this is the turning point of the psalm. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. And then at the end of this urgent appeal, we are are returned to the assured affirmations and praise with which the psalm began. Well, in fact, Psalm 9 began. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. And you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. So despite all the scheming and smugness of the wicked, God remains king while the unbelieving nations will perish. God's character remains unchanged in Psalm 10. He is the defender of the weak and the oppressed, just as it was affirmed in Psalm 9. And so in our place and time, which seems so self-assured in its unbelief, I think these two psalms provide us with confidence, a confidence anchored in God's character. He does not change. When the arrogant prosper and oppress the vulnerable, God hears the prayer of the afflicted. He defends the fatherless and the oppressed. And so we can trust in his sovereignty even in the face of rulers who taunt God, who imagine themselves superior to God, who pretend they'll never have to give an account. Our problem, our challenge is that we don't see how God will bring them to justice. In the face of the arrogant, we we just want the tables turned and we want the weak to be comforted while the arrogant get theirs and we yearn for this, but we don't see it. Psalms 9 and 10 show us that the righteous who've gone before us have faced the same issue and learned how to pray their way through it. We do feel the weight of the objections and we turn to God instead of running away. This is where our prayer lives have an opportunity to expand their horizons. We need not bury our heads in the sand or block our ears to the complaints of the skeptics. Instead, we're assured that God's big enough to hear our complaint, respectfully addressed with faithful expectation. God will arise. He'll not forget the helpless. We will yet praise his justice. So who are the weak whose cause you can bring before God? Who are the oppressed in need of God's protection? As you come to God now in prayer, in which particular situation will you ask God to reveal his righteous character? Make this your prayer now.